The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Every now and then, somebody sends me a quotation, and it makes my day and changes my attitude. This one was like that. It's from Rabbi Abraham Heschel, and he said, Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, to get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is amazing. Never treat life casually. And that is so apropos for our program today because I am in radical amazement of both our guests one of whom is changing the world through food and commerce, and the other who is changing the world through food and medicine. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Program, here on Unity Online Radio, and obviously podcast platforms far and wide. What a pleasure to have you with us today. After the break, we will be bringing back a regular by popular demand, and that is Dr. Joel Kahn. And now we're going to be speaking with someone who is on the program for the very first time. And I'm so excited about the amazing things that this young woman is doing to make a difference in the world. She is Dr. Dalal Algoas, the program director at Big Idea Ventures, a venture capital firm which invests in future food technologies in the alternative protein ecosystem. She established the first food technology accelerator program in Hong Kong and has worked with over 25 global tech startups with a special focus on plant-based protein alternatives. She holds a PhD in food science and technology. She spent her formative years in the UK and the Middle East. She is a proud Kuwaiti citizen and a Hong Kong permanent resident. Welcome, Dr. Dalal Algoas. Oh, thank you, Victoria, for that great introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, it's wonderful to be with you. We met through Katrina Fox, who is <laughs> the great connector. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy to know you and to be introducing you to our listeners. So first, just tell us your vegan story. How did you get here? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's just really interesting. Of course, I think you know, these ideas are always in our mindset, you know, how we can, you know, let's say, make an impact on the world, how we can improve, you know, sustainability, and also, you know, incorporate a, a deeper, like, social responsibility to whatever we're doing. And, and of course, you know, having um, the opportunity to combine that not only as your passion, but also as your career is, is really empowering. And um, I would say that, you know, when, when I started my career in food science and food technology, um, you know, we never thought that these opportunities would ever be there in this world, um, or at least in our lifetime. Um, and, you know, kind of just seeing the, um, I would say, the, the ecosystem and it's also the investment space. Um, you know, actually, when I was at university, um, we had the sort of the first just products were starting to become introduced into the Hong Kong market. Um, and at that time, one of the, let's say, the Hong Kong investors um, from Horizon Ventures um, started investing in Just, and you know they were doing this big push and campaign to introduce, you know, let's say, um, plant-based alternatives to the market. So that kind of, you know, just kind of started my my interest in the space. And I thought, okay, I need to get into the sector. I need to find ways how to really improve, um, you know, transitioning from R and D towards commercialization. How we can really make a difference at, at sort of not just you know, adopting food uh, product, you know, adopting, let's say, food trends, but really being uh, involved in and empowering these companies to actually, you know, take control, become established and successful businesses going forward. So um, I would say that that passion was always there and there were always these, you know, little reminders that it was possible. Um, and, you know, once I graduated, I just got sucked up um, into the investment world, you know, trying my best to, you know, let's say, um, contribute with my scientific background and, you know, just by, by luck and chance, you know, I got the opportunity to, um, you know, work for an accelerator firm and establish, you know, the, a, a food technology program. So um, I think that's what's kind of led me towards this route of really combining, you know, my passion for sustainability um, and then, you know, making it uh, embedded into my career. It's so exciting. So for those of us who do not have business backgrounds, just explain to us what a venture capital firm does and what is an accelerator fund? That's a, that's a great question. I'm still figuring it out myself, so uh, I'll try my best to, to convey it to the audience. So um, essentially, um, let's say for, for innovation and in order to kind of grow um, let's say early stage, you know, startups into successful businesses, I would say there are many stages and steps. So the, the first initial step will usually be through an incubation program, uh, which is typically, let's say, government sponsored. And, um, and you know, usually the programs that are involved do not um, take any equity, like from the companies or, you know, any incentives. So it's really just about kind of incubating ideas. The, the next step or the next level will be an accelerator program. So that's when you have, let's say, an institutional investor come on board, um, you know, let's say, uh, inject capital into the company. Um, at the same time, give them the same sort of, um, you know, backbone and framework um, as an incubation program. But this time it's, you know, embedded with an investor. So the, the companies should have, you know, let's say, more traction uh, at that stage. But at the same time, um, it, the reason why we call them accelerators is because it really will help them accelerate their growth, um, you know, and everything from their product development to their fundraising strategy, distribution, and, and overall scaling up. 
Um, for a VC fund, typically that has been the, the next stage, I would say. So that's where you have, you know, let's say um, a more established company, um, and then they would, you know, come on board towards a, you know, let's say a, a, a late uh, a late seed stage or even a, a pre-series A to series A. Um, so, you know, maybe injecting more capital. But you can see as well what's happening is you're starting to have uh, VC accelerator hybrids popping up. And, and that's what Big Idea Ventures is, uh, essentially. So the reason why VC capitals are now, uh, sorry, VC um, firms are now looking to invest in earlier stage startups um, is because they see a lot of potential. And of course, to get in uh, with more attractive terms. So for instance, if you invest in an early stage company, um, of course, it's very risky. Uh, but if you kind of give them that backbone, give them the infrastructure as well as the support through an accelerator program, um, you will also de-risk your investment because you really have a, a really good um, idea as well as scope of what the companies are doing. Um, and that also helps you to edge, helps, let's say, the investment firm as well as the, uh, the LPs who are investing in the fund to really understand the ecosystem as well. So I would say that, you know, the, you know, there are different steps, I would say, like, you know, the incubation accelerator than VC. Um, but, you know, now you can see kind of, um, I would say, you know, crossovers and sort of hybridizations between these different um, investment like uh, arms or investment vehicles. I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah, it, it does. It's fascinating. Now, for those of us whose relationships with alternative protein foods are to buy some at Whole Foods, what does it take to get from the idea stage to where that package is actually in the supermarket and how is Big Idea Ventures part of that? That's a really great question. Um, so even though it sounds very simple, it's a quite a complex process. So it's especially when you look at plant-based um, or let's say alternative protein companies. So, you know, for, for these, you know, ventures or these, you know, ideas, um, you know, they're usually going to be the, the first movers. So there, there won't be enough information available on how to kind of move from the lab scale to the pilot or even the, you know, let's say the upscale manufacturing stages. So there needs to be a lot of R&D. Um, typically what would happen is, you know, we would um, accept companies that have done some basic R&D, have a sort of minimum viable product. Um, they might be, of course, you know, uh, testing these products out in the market, you know, having some preliminary sales or preliminary feedback. Um, and then it's all about, you know, tweaking. Um, so when they, they join the program, actually, um, you know, we're very lucky that sort of the, the founder of you know, Big Idea Ventures, as well as the management team, um, are really keen on hiring, let's say, more technical staff. So we actually have three PhD scientists um, in the team. Um, so like, you know, my role, of course, I have more of an upstream let's say, technical background, and some of my colleagues are more downstream. So all that means, of course, is that we can come in and kind of help them tweak their formula. So from looking at the ingredients side, the safety side, um, and then helping them understand how to move from a lab scale or bench, you know, bench scale towards pilot or, manuf or large, large scale manufacturing. So everything will change. Um, you know, things that you can create or design in your kitchen won't necessarily fit in a large co-manufacturing plant that's producing, you know, tons, um, you know, tons of, you know, of your, of your product in, in like a very large batch. So making sure that we really understand the limitations and understand what kind of processes, um, as well as, you know, the, the packaging that needs to be involved, the shelf life stability that needs to be assessed, um, and then all of the, you know, ingredients that need to be put in as well to make sure that product is safe and stable. So, 
I would say that it's it's a it's a long journey, and there will be many many iterations as companies go by. So that's something that they they should be used to and, and kind of comfortable with um, as they as they grow. So you know, our our role is of course is to give them enough guidance, support, and of course connect them to the right ecosystem players to make sure that they can you know step by step move from those you know uh, smaller to larger batch uh, productions. So it sounds as if there are at least two different kinds of plant protein products on the market and 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 coming on the market and and we're I'm talking just now in the plant world not not in the cell based yet we'll get to that but some of them seem so simple you read the label and it's quinoa walnuts and black beans you know it's the kind of thing I could have done in my kitchen if I had enough time but then we get the the ones that are really like meat, the ones that seem to go out into the world of non-vegetarians and, and change things. So if somebody has one of these simpler ideas, do they need somebody like you, or are we just talking about the really sophisticated meaty meat kinds of products? That's a really good good point and really great. Uh, I'm really glad that you brought it up. So I, I think, yeah, definitely you have kind of two streams of, I would say, you know, minimally processed uh, plant-based products and then the more, you know, refined or, or high, you know, or more, more processed products. Um, I think, you know, what we need to understand, of course, and, and I think you, you described this you know, perfectly, is the demographic. So for, you know, flexitarians, um, you know, or even for, you know, let's say um, consumers that are, are thinking of converting to veganism, it's very important that they have a smooth transition. Um, and that's why sort of recreating um, products that really emulate, um, let's say, animal protein from the texture, the flavor does require a lot of processing, um, let's say, techniques as well as very um, refined or, or highly purified extracts. So... Um, I would say that yes, you know, a, a company would find a lot of would get a lot of advice and expertise from us, you know, if they wanted to go down that um, avenue. But then, you know, if, uh, if you were they were going to go towards sort of the more minimally processed, I would say that um, it depends. You you can find um, very sophisticated techniques, of course, for extending the shelf life, uh, for incorporating simple ingredients into um, let's say delicious snacks um, that are you know affordable. Um, as well as convenient. Um, and just to give you an example, you know, we have invested in that category already. So we have, um, you know, outside of our, let's say, plant-based, um, you know, meats or dairy and seafood, we also look into, you know, healthy functional foods. Um, so that's, you know, utilizing, um, you know, let's say, just, you know, nutritious, you know, ingredients and creating, you know, great snacks. So we've invested in, um, I would say, two um, chips companies. So one of them is using, you know, just, you know, very minimally processed, um, I would say, lower temperature baking methods, um, or sorry, lower temperature frying methods to produce, you know, really delicious, um, colorful vegetable chips. And we also have another company that's using teff flour, uh, which is very high in fiber and other, you know, uh, you know vitamins and minerals uh, to create like, you know, teff chips. So I would say that, you know, each... Each ingredient will have its own complexity, depending on how creative, um, let's say, the the chef or the food scientist is, and, and what they're trying to create for the ecosystem. And of course, you can see a lot of companies that are bringing new ingredients to the market. You know, I think quinoa hasn't been around for quite a long time, 
Um, I think I've only seen it, you know, popping up uh, sort of in the mainstream market, um, maybe only in the last 10 years. So I think a lot of these companies will have the same challenges of introducing these minimally processed new ingredients. And this is something that you can see as well with jackfruit. So with jackfruit, um, you know, this is let me a very simple ingredient, but um, because of you know it's it's um, it's close, let's say resemblance to pulled chicken or pulled pork, these kind of meat textures. So so you can see companies are really sort of drawn towards it because they don't have to do that much except you know blanch it and then add the flavoring and make sure that they can soften the texture accordingly. So. There's no right and wrong, uh, but I think what we need to also understand is, unfortunately, there's been a lot of rhetoric um, in the mainstream, let's say markets, you know, amongst consumers that, you know, processed foods are bad and minimally processed or unprocessed foods are good. Um, and this is something I think every food scientist will be very frustrated about uh, because nothing is black and white and things aren't that simple. Um, and, you know, just because a thing goes, uh, let's say a food item goes through a process that could be for our benefit. Um, for instance, when you do, let's say, extraction methods, you're usually concentrating um, something beneficial or maybe eliminating something. Um, so I'll give you an example. You know, during my PhD, I worked with, uh, you know, different extraction methods for, you know, oat fiber. And what we wanted to understand is how could you create um, an oat concentrate with a very high fiber content, almost, uh, you know, 60% higher than the traditional, um, you know, unrefined oat bran. Um, and, you know, we managed to do it and it was great because we can incorporate it in so many different products. So on one side, you might say that, oh, this is processed, but actually it's creating a high fiber product that can be, uh, for, you know, used as a fortifying agent, um, you know, for a variety of snacks, baked goods, etc. So we really need to understand what the process is. Um, of course, if it's, you know, frying, um, if it's, you know, let's say, uh, I would say that you know, this is more applicable to you know, animal protein, but sort of the, the grilling methods that we can see now with, with red meat creating, you know, some unstable volatile compounds. This is something that we also need to consider when it comes to our process. Um, so we need to just be very careful. And I, I hope now, you know, there, there is more awareness since we have a very, you know, conscious consumer, uh, you know, let's say growing. And, and, and I think, you know, especially with your talk shows, you can see that there's so much interest in this space. So you know, I, I, have, I have hope that, you know, people's uh, perceptions will change. Um, and it's, of course, our job as well to, to always promote um, that, you know, we need to be balanced and, and make sure that we can promote both processed and minimally processed foods. Terrific. Now let's get into what I think, especially among vegans, is the really controversial area. And these are the lab-grown meats. So how do you address the kind of queasiness that some people feel about those? And then how about just the practicality? Is, is this going to happen? Is it going to be affordable enough to really change the marketplace? Yeah, that's... Um... I think all of us are amazed at the sector. Um, you know, when I was starting off my career in medical science, um, you know, they had just sort of established the first um, embryonic stem cells. Um, and this was, I think, in the early 2000s. So really seeing the, um, I would say, the evolution of this technology into, um, you know, its utility as, as food rather than, you know, let's say organ uh, donation or organ transplantation. Um, is, is really unique. And I think even for someone with a scientific background, it takes a while to kind of wrap your head around what this technology um, has done and what it's capable of doing. So I think in general, um, you know, not only vegans, everyone is very, um, I would say, skeptical, um, as well as, you know, unsure about this technology. 
And, um, you know, we work with a lot of cell-based companies at Big Idea Ventures. And, you know, something that we constantly talk about is the, you know, the basics, just the nomenclature. So how you kind of describe this technology is very important for driving the acceptance. Um, I think, you know, for the, the applications, especially towards sustainability, um, it has great potential, even over plant-based products. And I'll explain why. So you can see now, like, especially with the pandemic, you know, everyone is really concerned about food security. Um, you know, living in Singapore, where they import 90% of their food, um, you know, is, is really something that we need to understand and, and take into consideration, especially if we have, you know, volatile food prices or any other, let's say, disruptions to the economy or trade. So with cell-based products, um, that would basically mean that we would not require arable land to grow livestock, to grow, you know, let's say any kind of animal protein. Um, and that would also, you know, do away with, you know, aquaculture and all the other sort of um, technologies that are available. And every country would be um, self-sufficient in their meat production. So um, I think what we, we also need to understand is, you know, we, we have to be, let's say, open towards, you know, what is feasible in this society. Um, I, I'm, you know, and I can see, you know, from, you know, from a cultural perspective, you know, there's also religious perspectives, uh, traditional perspectives. There's going to be a lot of people on this planet that can't do without meat. So the best way forward is to produce something that is sustainable and, you know, without the harm towards, let's say, any living being, as well as, you know, harm to ourselves as, you know, humanity, you know, seeing the, the crossover of, of you know, um, zoonosis, you know, sort of virus crossover from, you know, um, animal species to humans, um, you know, everything from the antibiotic use um, and sort of the, uh, the other sort of unsustainable uh, practices can all be eliminated um, with so the cultured, let's say, tech, cultured meat technology. Um, in terms of, you know, where they're at um, and what, you know, they need to kind of succeed. Um, so in, in general, there, there will be many different facets. So you have, you know, from the technology standpoint, um, it's still, let's say, pretty much going through an R&D process. So understanding how to optimize, you know, let's say cell lines, where to uh, source specific cell lines that can be um, adaptable and, and be able to kind of really capture a specific market and grow a specific cell type that is desirable for consumers is very important. And then everything around the, let's say, the, the starter cell culture, um, how to kind of continuously grow them, how to continuously source them, um, and also without using GM, like sort of genetic modification. Um, is, is a huge challenge for this sector because, you know, with genetic modification, things will go a lot faster. You then have, of course, all of the, um, let's say, reagents. Uh, so that's all the material that's used to grow the cells. And that can be anything from the media, the scaffolding, the sort of the, uh, the microcarriers, everything that helps the cells adhere, uh, stick together and grow. And then you have the equipment side, which is like the bioreactors. So everything from the design of them, uh, the utility and also the, the management of the system, making sure that it's clean, it's safe, there's no contamination. So in general, we have a lot of different, um, let's say, aspects towards this process. And everyone is kind of working on their own for now. Uh, of course, there are a few collaborations here and there, but everyone's trying to grow a very specific product. So in general, if we look at sort of the timeline, um, in order to get over the technical hurdles and really produce at scale, um, I think it's been predicted that this might be, you know, anywhere from five to ten years from now to really grow it efficiently. But then after that, it's really about the regulations. 
So, you know, the regulatory process I know has already been sort of uh, kickstarted, especially in the U.S. with the USDA and the FDA. You also have, of course, the, the EU uh, food safety authorities, the EFSA, quite, you know, keen on, on uh, providing protocol and guidelines around this uh, sector. And you also have a huge push from Asia Pacific as well. So typically, when we look at the regulatory side, um, we know that for different parts of the world, there will be different timelines. So for countries like in North America or also in the, the EU, it's going to take a lot longer. And the reason for that is because, the, comp the let's say, the regulatory process is more complex. There are a lot more stakeholders and there's a lot more interference with the traditional animal lobbying sectors. So they're going to be always pushing back and forth until they kind of meet midway. And you've seen this many times, especially with, you know, let's say big um, issues and debates like, you know, the, the cigarette ban um, and other kind of, you know, big debates where you're challenging a traditional sector. Um, so this is good. This is our like estimations for North America for and, and the EU. But for Asia Pacific, on the other hand, and maybe some other regions, including the Middle East, um, it's foreseen that this might be more flexible just because there isn't a very established, let's say, food authority sector. Um, that's also intertwined with the industry. So, it, you know, if there's sort of a government push, um, as well as a very authoritarian regime, like you have in, you know, in China, as well as Singapore, um, then you will, you know, kind of see this being pushed out a lot faster. The timeline, I would say in general, um, you know, it's, it's debatable and you'll have a lot of different opinions. Um, I personally think it might take anywhere from 10 to 15 years for it to be commercially widely available. But in order for us to kind of see it as a pop-up showcase, um, we might be hearing more about this in the next five to 10 years. Utterly fascinating. And now we have plant-based meat. So in our last minute, just from where you sit with your incredible global view, how do you see the world embracing the plant-based proteins? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think... When you when you think, I mean, based in Asia Pacific, so you know, I I can speak from that part of the world first. So um, there, you know, being in, in sort of Asia Pacific and also having India close by, these are traditionally, let's say, vegetarian cultures everywhere. From cultures, um, and then you have Hinduism that kind of, uh, I would say, like you know, prevents you know the consumption of specific animal types as well as fasting of you know of not eating meat for specific days on end. So. I think in general, the, the adoption will be a lot easier, um, as well as, of course, in China, they have had meat, you know, Beyond an Impossible did a great job at making them, you know, I guess, like revamping them at the same time, um, you know, make, giving them a really fun and unique appeal. And this is also applicable for companies like Oatly, you know, kind of making, um, you know, plant-based products seem, you know, trendy and hip and cool. So um, kind of taking them away from that spiritual element where you, where it was typically in Asian culture. I think now you can see a huge push from local entrepreneurs in the region um, to, to really jump on that bandwagon and create localized plant-based products. And I think the consumer mindset is there, um, especially when you tie with health and nutrition. So Love um, it. the woman, Love of course, it. I think, oh, oh sorry. No, that's <laughs> so, okay. So sorry to have to interrupt. We have this radio no, stop, hard stop. Dr. No Dalal Algoas, thank you so much. That was utterly fascinating. And everybody else, stay with us. We've got one of your favorite doctors, Joel Kahn, coming up.
Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. Isn't it exciting to talk about these new phenomenal ideas? And we've got some pretty phenomenal stuff going on at MainStreetVegan.net. So uh, do visit there. You can find out all about Main Street Vegan Academy. Are you a vegan ready to up your game? You might want to take the program and get yourself certified as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator. We also have something else exciting coming up in at the end of September 2020, and that is my Acing Age with Ayurveda workshop. So if you're 40, 45, 50, 60, whatever, then this might be a topic of appeal to you. You can go to MainStreetVegan.net and check that out. And now it is my great pleasure to invite back our favorite Joel Kahn, MD, joining us from Detroit, Michigan. He is a practicing cardiologist, clinical professor of medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine. He's America's healthy heart doc. And he has a triple board certification in internal medicine, cardiovascular medicine, and interventional cardiology. And he is the author of several books, the latest being Lipoprotein A, The Heart's Quiet Killer. Welcome, Dr. Joel Kahn. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I just happened to be online two days ago with uh, Juliana Hever, and she was so geeked that she was going to be teaching at the Main Street academy so uh yeah I, uh, everybody listening be sure to sign up oh thank you so much because we're on zoom now so you know people used to say oh but it's expensive to come to new york and find a hotel well now you can get certified via zoom with wonderful instructors dr khan has taught for us uh, we had Dr. Milton Mills this time, and, and uh, Juliana Hever and Marty Davey, registered dietitians. So we are cooking with gas at Main Street Vegan Academy, and thank you, Dr. Khan, for that shout-out. So when I was checking when you were last on, it was actually recently in terms of months. You were on in January of 2020, but January of 2020 was another generation. Everything changed with COVID. So start with that. Help us out where we are now, what we should be doing as individuals to make the best of what's going on. Uh, sure. And, you know, the messaging hasn't changed. It's probably gotten more urgent and it's lifestyle first. And then after that, it could be, you know, prescription drugs and supplements and very rarely procedures and surgeries. But, you know, seven, eight hours of sleep at night is no longer an option because it is the time our body heals, repairs, restores makes our immune system optimal and we want a good immune system right now we need to get fitness in it can be walking it can be biking it can be swimming it can be all the online gym courses because sadly most gyms are still closed but there's more options than ever and less excuses to say i can't find something i like to do for free yoga classes uh pilates classes stretch classes you know some amazing new data just stretching every day and its benefits for the heart system 
Uh, you don't even break a sweat, though I encourage you to do that. You know, eating, my God, we know, we don't know exactly, but we do know this healthy, colorful plant diet that you teach and I teach impacts our immune system. We want to get omega-3s. I've got ground flaxseed, hemp hearts, chia seeds, a few walnuts in my food every day, a lot of spices, uh, certainly vitamin D, eat all those mushrooms uh, in your diet and, you know, vary it around all different colors. And then, you know, managing stress would be the last one. Again, don't know exactly how, but we know that high stress, high anxiety, uh, not coping well impacts our emotional and immune health specifically, but whether it's breathing, meditation, good sleep, lavender essential oils, uh, light therapy, but find something, music, prayer, that fills your soul with goodness because it will also cause those little beastie white blood cells to work better and protect us. Optimal weight, last thing, it is the data on obesity and COVID is actually scary. And um, it, you know, it's not easy to get to that ideal weight, but it's more imperative than ever. And I wish more public officials were teaching the public. It's not just, it is hand washing and masks and gloves in appropriate crowded setting and distancing. But you know, your health can be managed at home, maybe better than ever, because we're eating at home and we can actually do a good job of that. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Now, what is light therapy? That's something I've uh, never heard of. Yeah, there is um, an unbelievable body of science that's still largely hidden. If you want the fancy word, it's called PBM, photobiomodulation. If you want what Hollywood stars call it, they call it red light therapy. But there are these panels from $200 to $1,000, intense red light, infrared and near-infrared for mood, for beautiful glowing skin and collagen production, for actually better nitric oxide production, better blood pressure, and after a workout to avoid um, aches and pain. So a lot of sports teams will put, professional sports teams, their athletes in front of these red light panels before and after uh, a performance or a heavy workout. But it's something I incorporated when I started reading the science uh, coming from an esteemed Harvard professor, like textbooks and articles and hundreds and hundreds of articles. So red light therapy, there's a very good book by that name on Amazon. I didn't write it, but a friend of mine did. And it has you know, a large chunk of the science there. So is this something you can buy and have at home or do you have to go somewhere and no, get it this? It used to be a dermatology office, a physical therapy office might have a $20,000 bed or panel with these red lights. And it's not a tanning bed. Tanning bed is UV. This is not UV. This is uh, intense red light. It's kind of like getting into the matrix uh, zone or something. But I have a panel that costs $700, but it's actually fills the entire back of a door. It's a whole body red light panel. That used to be $20,000. It's just the compression of prices. I have one. I shopped around and I talked to experts. Red therapy.co.co. It's a cool little thing called the 720 panel. But you can even get one as small as the size of a book and it just mainly treats your face or maybe you have some psoriasis or skin issues. It can be very therapeutic. But it's also showing up in the Hollywood woo world because it actually is very good to avoid wrinkles and cellulite and age spots. And that's science statements. So I don't mind adding on a little hack to keep it glowing. <laughs> Because when you and I win the sexiest vegans over a hundred, yeah, you know, it's a little advantage. We're That's not a hundred yet. Anybody listening, we <laughs> we won it over fifty, but 
Victoria and I are gunning to win it again in another 50 years. Yeah, we'll do that. So you said when, when you were going to be on back in January, you sent me some talking points, and we had so much to talk about, we didn't even get to them. But one of your resolutions for January was that you were going to place sleep as a priority and use technology to enhance it. So is this the technology you're talking about, or is there something else? Not really. That is not. Um, although it's peaceful, it's relaxing, it's meditative, so it, it may have some sleep benefits. I'm not aware of any actually verified ones. Um, I wear a ring at night. It's called the Aura, O-U-R-A ring. Most people feel it is the most accurate uh, sleep tracker. There's Garmin and Fitbit. I mean, my wife kind of chuckles because I can say I got, you know, six minutes and 49, six hours and 49 minutes. But I also know the depths of my sleep, how many times I was awake, was I restless. And sometimes I'll do a little melatonin at night and see I'm like a little scientist. Sometimes I'll take a little hemp oil at night. Sometimes I'll take nothing. Uh, maybe I had a little glass of wine at 930. Shouldn't do that. I'm going to have a little glass of wine, do it at 630. And you now you can really do a little inspection and find out what works uh, best for you. Um, that's technology. There's actually, very interestingly, now a project with that company and UCSF Medical Center that they track some health parameters that could alert you that you have COVID based on some changes in your uh, heart rate and what's called heart rate variability. So that's a research project, but since I have it, I just clicked on to have my data shared with UCSF. Oh, what else is technology? Lavender essential oils, Epsom salt baths, rich in magnesium before bed. It's not really like high technology, but it helps. It's usually supplement based. Now you can use meditative apps, the Calm app, the uh, Heart Math program, the um, uh, orange one, Headspace app. These all can help you sleep. Last one I'd say if people haven't heard of something called binaural music, B-I-N-A-U-R-A-L music. It's a kind of new age music. You can go to YouTube and get eight hours of constantly playing binaural music. It has an impact on the brain that's restful and restorative. And I actually have patients that sleep like babes because they actually plug in headphones and are listening to these kind of, you know, gently electrical music that uh, matches some of the wavelengths in our brain when we're asleep and kind of induces it. Cool stuff. It is cool. That's why it's so much fun to have you come on and talk. Now, one of the other things you said back in January that you were resolving was to eat within a 10-hour window. Right. What's that about? And how do you make it work in the real world? Right. And that is, uh, you know, based now on close to 30 years of science, going back to that biosphere outside of Tucson and Dr. Walter Longo, one of my favorite nutrition science experts to rely on. But the idea that we have built into the human biochemistry, just like animal models and earthworms and yeast, when we stop eating for a day or two or three, or even if we stop eating for 12 to 14 hours, we can actually enhance the way our body heals, repairs, restores. So eating all the time and eating like the gym uh, trainers sometimes tell us six, seven times a day is not really consistent with the science. So there's something called time-restricted eating, T-R-E. And there's some very compelling data that, you know, maybe eating your first meal 9 or 10 a.m., unless you're a type one diabetic where you really need to have a meal to avoid blood sugar crashes. 
and then maybe having your last meal around 6 or 7 p.m. And then you're done that kind of 10, 11 hour window. If you're challenged with a little weight, blood pressure, blood sugar, triglyceride issue you're not happy with, you may be able to move the needle and certainly might move the scale towards a point you're trying to get to. So we talk a lot. It's not only about what you eat, which you and I are always talking about, but it's also uh, somewhat when you eat. And eating big meals late at night is probably the worst choice, but we all know the uh, chips and guac come out around 10 p.m. when Netflix goes on. Not a very good habit. Yeah. So you mentioned supplements uh, in, in that last uh, paragraph or so, and I read somewhere that you said that vitamin K2 is the important nutrient that we're not getting. So tell us what it is, why we're not getting it, how we're supposed to get it, and what it's good for. Um, sure. Uh, about 100 years ago, a vitamin was discovered out of Germany called vitamin K, K for coagulation, the way they spelt it at the time, not with a C. So you get vitamin K from green leafies, helps your blood clot normally, plus all the other benefits of green leafies like spinach and kale and arugula. Um, but about 40 years ago, vitamin K2 was discovered. It had a bit of a structural similarity, so it's also falls in the vitamin K family. It's very challenging to get from food. Now, there are some animal-based foods that have some certain cheese rinds and meats. I don't want any part of that. In the plant world, it's largely natto. Natto is a soybean paste. You'll find it at a sushi restaurant. You'll find it at an Asian restaurant. You can buy it online. It has a distinctively unappealing smell, odor, taste that is part of the Japanese culture, but for most American palates, it's going to take you a while to like it. And I do have patients that order natto and eat it. But there are now solutions. So vitamin K2 seems to be very important in bone health. Getting enough vitamin D, getting enough vitamin K2 may help promote better bones, less osteoporosis, osteopenia. And for artery health, we don't want our arteries to get calcified. We want our teeth and our bones to be calcified. Having enough vitamin K2 may shift the equation, build stronger bones, and maintain flexible, more youthful arteries, which is what we'd like to do. So more and more, there are appearing some plant-based multivites, and they have vitamin K2 in them. The average big box store multivite will not have vitamin K2, but Matt Frazier, the no meat athlete, has one. Uh, another Dr. Joel, a healthy doctor with an F at the end of his name, has one. You know, <laughs> I'll let them do their own promotion, but um, they are well thought out, in my opinion, you know, approaches. That's cool. Well, I'll, I'll um, do the shout out for Matt's then, because that is Compliment Plus. Right. Uh, and they're one of our sponsors, so uh, I can okay, say, yay, yeah. Compliment That's Plus. I just started a patient this morning on Compliment Plus. I take Compliment Plus, and it really has a little bit of iodine, which can be challenging unless you eat seaweed, a little bit of magnesium, selenium, uh, the omega-3 from algae. So it really is a one-stop shop uh, vegan multivite that potentially, uh, you know, why do a few vegans out there quit? I always wonder. I'm sure you wonder. Why do they quit? And I always wonder about some of these like micronutrients and uh, either they weren't motivated in the right place or they weren't getting good advice or maybe they just were missing something. Yeah, possibly. so it might be a micronutrient and it might be an annoying family member. 
But anyway, if you want to get Compliment and save a little money on it, you go to their website, which is lovecompliment.com. And if you put Main Street Vegan in caps and then a plus sign, uh, you will save some money on that. Uh, But as Dr. Khan said, you get your nutrients wherever you want to get your nutrients. But I want to ask you about another one. And, And this is one that is not a sponsor. I have been taking NAD. Um, it, it, the brand Fire? I get is True Niagen. I don't know if there are other brands, but I read that it's really good for aging like a rock star. Am I right or am I being led on? Well, I, I, I am a vitamin guy and I take it also and I read the literature, but NAD, we don't really call it NAD, uh, it's NAD+, plus, is an important compound to make energy in human cells. We absolutely know that professor in Iowa named Charles Brenner has done enormous research. And like everything else, by about age 40 on, we don't make as much efficiently. And a lot of people are tired. A lot of people, even on plant diets, and certainly the majority of people not, you know, they would love to have more energy and more focus and more productivity. And as we make less, we may be suffering from, uh, you know, it's not a clinical diagnosis to say you have a low NAD production, but may in reality be as important as you know, having a low vitamin D or low testosterone or low progesterone and all the rest. So there is enough data to know you can take the vitamin you said, true niagen. You can boost your blood and cell levels of NAD. It's too early to claim we're curing heart disease or living longer. Um, you know, it's on the list of things that may be important for optimal health and bouncing off the walls. So, uh, you know, I include it in my mix if not every day, you know, many days, a little pricey, but not crazy pricey. Uh, you can find it, you know, from, I think True Niagen actually supplies it to a variety of vitamin companies. So you might find other vitamins that have it. There's actually IV NAD, if you really want to step your game up and you will literally jump buildings in a single bounce after one of those. But <laughs> it also may have a role in helping people detox off alcohol and drugs, at least in LA, that's the, uh, trend. So, you know, if you've got limited dollars, ignore everything we said. If you're really into trying to hack and optimally manage your health, eat your plants, get your fitness, get your sleep. But then there is, you know, a list beyond that if uh, you're reading and studying the trends. So since we've been talking about the lists beyond that, what what have we missed? What else are you finding fascinating these days? Um Without, you know, too many shout outs, there are a couple vitamins coming out that are modified pomegranates. And one is a brain supplement studied extensively in Israel, uh, pomegranate seed oil, but it's a capsule. You're not drinking oil. And another is a, if you eat pomegranates, one of the, you know, biblical food, amazingly good for arteries, for cholesterol. But if, if your microbiome, your gut is healthy, you'll convert pomegranates into a compound nobody's ever heard of called urolithin A. And urolithin A uh, restores muscles and their ability to, uh, you know, resist aging and replenish and regenerate. Uh, So anyway, somebody came up with a vitamin that's pure urolithin A. There actually is human and animal studies on it. It's not like it's just pulling it off a tree. It's pricey. I think pomegranates are very cool. And if the only message is eat more pomegranates, we did our job. You know, you got a pretty good chance you'll make your lithin A. Anyways, um, you know, I'm interested in that. There's a couple other longevity vitamins out there. But, you know, if you're not taking good care of your diet, your sleep, your, sleep, your fitness, your uh, 
level of calm and uh, stress management, you know, it, it's the vitamins aren't going to do the trick. So these are add-ons mm. once you've really nailed the rest. Just a, a pomegranate question. I, they're hard to eat because they're mostly seeds. And so most people that are into pomegranate drink the juice. And yet we're told we shouldn't be drinking fruit juice because of the sugar. Yeah, Good, bad, a little bit okay? Yeah, there is unsweetened pomegranate juice. And we all know it's a pretty bitter taste uh, if that's what you're getting. Just like tart cherry juice is very tart and very unsweet. Uh, there are studies from Israel in people with plaque in their arteries drinking eight ounces of unsweetened pomegranate juice and showed improvements in their cholesterol numbers and actually in their arteries. So I think that is one you can sneak in. Tart cherry juice some people use as a gout preventive. Um, and pomegranate, you know, if, if you don't wanna buy frozen pomegranate kernels or go through what you are correctly indicating is a hassle uh, cleaning up pomegranates, uh, uh, a little bit, a shot glass of unsweetened pomegranate juice is a pretty cool add-on. You know, mm. the colors, the bright red, beautiful yeah, colors. Yeah, the color is amazing. So let's talk about your book. Now, did I pronounce it right? Is it lipo or lipoprotein A that we need to know about and watch out for? Just hearing you say it makes me happy. But uh, <laughs> it is uh, probably appropriately called lipoprotein little a. And really compacting this into a minute, 60 years ago, a scientist in Europe discovered we have a kind of cholesterol in the blood that probably no listener has heard of that I'm talking about, lipoprotein little a. It has some similarity to the cholesterol your doctor draws, the LDL cholesterol, but it's like on drugs. It's, it's three times more dangerous, potentially. Causes your blood to clot, can cause your arteries to clog, can... Um, actually uh, uh, actually cause inflammation. And we now know that if you inherit it from your parents, you might have two to four times the risk of heart attack, stroke, and even a heart valve problem. And it's a blood test, it's about a $25 blood test. But you have to ask your doctor if you have heart disease in the family, or if you're very proactive about your health. Next blood test, please add on my lipoprotein little a blood level. And your doctor will say, I don't know what that is and I've never drawn it. Because right now, there's not a prescription drug we know of that lowers it. There's one in development by a big company called Novartis. As soon as there is a, a drug available, every doctor in the world will start drawing it. That's just the economics of medical practice. Not ideal, but it is the case. But you don't have to wait. There's many things <clears throat> that can be done. Um, and it's found, this is the key point. 25 to 30% of all people inherited this from their parents. It's nothing exotic. It's the most common genetic cause of heart attacks and strokes, and yet most people have never heard about it and uh, you know, never had it drawn. So uh, my whole practice is people all over the world with either they're asking to get it done or they've had it done and it's super high, and many of them had their heart attack at age 45 or had a stent at age 51, and you know, they, and what we don't know is optimal plant-based diet, perfect lifestyle, does it completely neutralize the risk? My opinion is it does not. It lowers the risk to have that optimal, you know, dietary and lifestyle approach. But why wouldn't you want to know the whole picture? Frankly, there's a B vitamin called niacin, does a pretty darn good job of lowering it and neutralizing it, but it's not been studied 
in enough people to claim victory. Uh, and it's so cheap, it'll never be studied. It's just, again, the economics of medical practices, these studies re require so much investment that um, only big expensive drugs really get studied. Well, we can certainly read the book, Lipoprotein A, The Heart's Quiet Killer, and uh, get knowledgeable about that. I, I, I love this going into the doctor and saying, please add on this and this and this, because you've told me things in the past to ask to be added on. And, and you know, physicians must be taught in medical school not to roll their eyes, but you can kind of tell it's happening oh, internally. Will, they will. They'll resist. They'll say, I won't do it, and I don't know what it is. The other bonus of the book, which is available, of course, on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles and all, is there's more than 50 plant-based recipes by Beverly Bennett, who's just an amazing recipe maker, because it's a beautiful book that's half science and half uh, plant-based um, healthy foods, because there is some data that healthy plant-based eating can lower and neutralize it to at least some extent. So it'd be a really bad idea to have a high lipoprotein A and love your McDonald's on a regular basis. That would... Yeah. That would not be good. So if, if your cholesterol level is, is a nice low vegan cholesterol level, could you still have this hiding in the background? You could. It could be beyond normal. You're probably not going to be sky high. Um, even a stand somewhere, like you find out your cholesterol is 205 and you did inherit lipoprotein A, somewhere buried in that number is the level of your lipoprotein A. You just got to check it. But... Yeah, if your cholesterol is 110, you could still have an elevated lipoprotein A. It can't be very high because it is buried in there and being measured in there. Do you know there is someone in the current Main Street Vegan Academy class whose cholesterol was low enough that she was denied life insurance? So, that we have a is to go. Archaic. That is, you know, inconsistent with any science. And I've actually seen a couple people, fortunately very rarely, say, oh, yeah, my doctor gave me cholesterol pills. You actually can buy them, um, which is insane. I mean, you want to go eat in a couple avocados or something. Uh, but there's no concern. It's very healthy to have a naturally low cholesterol of 90 or 100. Then we will strive, strive for at least the Framingham 150 and maybe better. Thank you so, so very much, Dr. Always Joel fun. Kahn, sexiest vegan over 50 and coolest doc around. Bless thank you. you. Bless <laughs> and to everybody who listened, thank you so much. And thanks to Unity Online Radio for being behind this program since 2012. God bless. Eat your veggies. See you next time. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. 
Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.